They've watched Citizen Kane a combined 200 times. Elliot's first words were, I personally thought the use of Dutch angles was derivative in the 400 blows. And Nathan's favorite historical figure is Fritz Lang. Now they're bringing that snootiness to you with Magellan's at the Movies. Wow. Welcome welcome back to the podcast. And uh, we'd like to firstly thank Jake for doing only the introduction. We just want to clarify here that Jake does not do anything beyond the introduction, which he plays live for us at the beginning of every episode. Um, we just wanted to clarify that. There's some misinformation shifting around in the universe. We'd also like to welcome our first guest in a while since Will Spaulding, uh, AJ Arnold. I don't know what the J stands for. The A is for Adrian, and then the second A is for Arnold. So, AJ, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, the J is for James. Just got to say, super impressive that you play that intro song live. <laughs> yeah, wow. Thank you. Thank you, AJ, for being impressed with that. Elliot, do you have any amazing banter to have with this gentleman you met 20 minutes ago? <laughs> Dude, how about Red Dead Redemption? Whoa. Oh, great wow. game. Big fan. Wow, amazing. Uh, that's all you got, Elliot? Uh, yeah, I just uh it's been a long day, and also I like Red Dead Redemption and its sequel. Yes, Red Dead Redemption 2. Mm-hmm. It has been a long day. It's here late in the evening. We're recording. I had a very busy afternoon. I had to go and make crepes, which I did not participate in, and then go and eat water or pineapple, which I also did not participate in the making of. But the pineapple was good. You sure did go around. I did. I was all over town. Elliot, I'm sure you had a wild evening as well, out and about, hitting the clubs and such. The hot nightlife of Indiana, (laughs) Iowa. It's like 8.40. The hot nightlife of Indianola hasn't even started yet. Mm, intro. Wow, crazy. That's amazing. Anyway, wow, cool. Anyway, speaking of Red Dead Redemption, uh, we've reviewed a Western for today. AJ, you got to pick it. Uh, give the listening audience a bit of an insight. Why do you pick this movie to review here on the podcast? Uh, yeah, so a few reasons. First of all, it's my dad's favorite movie. Wow. I think it's important that we all talk about our dad's favorite movies. You know, I remember so your, I was listening to your your Hunt for the Red October episode, oh and I was inspired. <laughs> He's um, been stalking us. <laughs> I have a deep parasocial Blink if you're okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm completely – I'm blinking. I'm blinking. Um, yes. I, I thought I would be remiss. It would be remiss of me to – Waste an opportunity to talk about an IMDb top 10 movie. Yes, number 10 currently. And I knew I wanted just, you know, an all-American film, and I thought this Italian movie would be great for that. (laughs) Directed by an Italian, mostly in Italy and Spain, I'm pretty sure. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I I love this movie. I might as well let our our listening audience get to know me. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, Share some fun facts, I guess. Fun facts. (laughs) If you want to. I'm probably going to be... A terrible critic, 
because I love just talking about things I love and I don't even notice the things I hate. Wow. Um, but when it comes to movies and films, I, I tend to have two different categories. I have, you know, some cinema can be great films and terrible movies. I think of like, like 12 Angry Men is a great example. Like so well written, so well thought out, like just makes you think, really makes you get in the heads of all these different characters. Nothing blows up the entire time. Oh. And then there's some, okay, you know, okay. great movies that are just not good films at all. I think Independence Day. Whoa. Just whoa, whoa. such a movie, you know, is so movie. Hey, I like Independence um, Day. Someone could have written it in an afternoon. Uh, that, that three that three act structure is literally day by day. Like July 2nd, 3rd, and 4th. Wow. Um, and what I love about this movie is I think it's both a great film and a great movie. Oh, it does have explosions, and it does have other other filmy sort of stuff. Yeah, thoughtful writing, great camera work, mm. you know, just a lot to love there. Okay, okay, that's pretty interesting, uh, Elliot. What are your as? Okay, I guess I can start by giving an intro for anyone who hasn't seen the movie. The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly is a classic spaghetti western. It's the final of the Dollars trilogy, which is kind of an iconic Western trilogy with Clint Eastwood as the man with no name, the protagonist. And this is the last one that Sergio Leone made before going on to make uh, Once Upon a Time in the West and then a horrific tragedy, travesty, kind of a, a human rights violation in some ways in Once Upon a Time in America. <laughs> um, but this one follows the good the bad and the ugly three bounty hunters as they learn of a, isn't it? It's a Confederate gold, something like that, or a union gold drop or some, some large amount of gold they discover has been moved and then secreted away somewhere. And so it's Mm. kind of follows them as they try to get to this treasure. But saying all that, Elliot, what are your initial thoughts here as we jump in on the movie? Have you seen this before? What are your thoughts going in? Enlighten us. Oh, yeah. Well, first of all, I think it's important to acknowledge that Sergio Leone should never be forgiven for making Once Upon a Time in America because that is the cardinal filmmaking sin is overseeing the production of Once Upon a Time in America. Uh, but I, I I do love a good Western. I like neo-Westerns and I like classical Westerns. I have seen this once before and I remembered enjoying it quite a bit. Watching it this time, I watched a lot of it with Dad because he has never seen it all the way through and still hasn't because he only watched like the last hour with me. He was blown away, if anyone was wondering. I myself... I definitely liked it. I thought it was I thought it was good and there were there were a lot of really impressive technical elements to it. Uh the score was an absolute banger at times uh and, and in general. But there are there are definitely some problems I had with the pacing and I'll de- I'll definitely be talking a lot about this. Uh I was not really impressed with Clint Eastwood in this movie. He is not exactly an actor with like 
what you might call emotional range or depth or anything like that. <laughs> and, and I found his, I found his, I understood what he was going for here, but I found his stoicism to sometimes be employed in situations where things were so intense and required so much reactions that it made him come across like he didn't actually understand what was happening. Interesting. Well, that's, I'm excited to see what all of that means. Cause some of that was kind of weird. I think my thoughts, I just like you, Elliot, I've seen this once before when I was just kind of getting into movies when I was in high school, I enjoyed it probably the most of any of the dollars trilogy movies. I thought it was the best one and watching it this time, I watched it with AJ, which might've contributed to how much I ended up enjoying it. Cause AJ was just having a peach of a time. And so I was just by nature of watching a movie with someone who was having a good time. I was having a pretty good time. I got a big kick out of this. I really enjoy, I thought some scenes were like, just the epitome of what a Western could be just with the score and the cinematography and the acting. And yeah, I think I have some of the same issues as you with pacing. I don't have the same issues as you with Eastwood. So I'm interested to get into that, but yeah, I, I enjoyed it quite a bit. So it sounds like it might be AJ and I against Elliot here. We always like to frame the reviews as a bit of a cage match <laughs> between the opposing <laughs> Opinions. I could never fight against my dear friend Elliot. How dare you? <laughs> <me>? <laughs> my dear friend Elliot. It's wow, like the one bad. Calvin and Hobbes comic strip where he talks about how every conversation is a is a match about crowding out the other person's perspective and always uh, maintaining a corner on the market of vocabulary that's being employed. Yes, I do really love that that bit. Anyway, let's let's you know maybe keep this on topic. Movies, AJ. What do you want to start with in discussing this film? Where do you want to Where do you want to begin? Because um, you have so he legit has so many notes. I do. You can't I see have, it. I have two formats of notes. Good grief! He has he's got a notebook full of notes, and then he's got his phone open to notes that he just scrolled for about five hundred years. So he has so many notes. Elliot, where are your notes? You just lifted up a book. Right here. Is that your book? Yeah. I, I, I'm pretty sure that's your Bible. <laughs> Not your notes. They, this, these, are, these are all the notes that I need, Nathan. Oh, sure. <laughs> of course. Of course. It's a Christian podcast. It's a Christian podcast. Heck of a zinger. Jake, do you think you could edit in the... Jake, uh... <laughs> <laughs> do you think you could edit in the... Uh... <laughs> from, from the movie so everyone knows that was a killer line? Wow. Okay, AJ, again? Um, yeah, I think the thing that struck me most about this movie is just how much it just wouldn't work as, like, a different medium, you know? Like, this movie wouldn't work as a book, you know? Mm. And to demonstrate that, I actually uh, wrote out the first scene as if I were writing it in a book. Oh, my goodness. If that's okay, I didn't run this by Absol first. Absolutely. Read this insane person <laughs> thing that you've written. <laughs> Okay, so what I wrote um, was the opening scene, um, and yes. if it weren't a book and I were the author, it would probably look a little something like this. Okay. Uh, so, chapter one. Look at this picture of the Old West. 
blue sky, orange mountains, and just kidding, this guy's weird face is in the way now. He's not really doing anything, just kind of standing there, way too close, staring directly at you. Uh, he has a gun in his hand. Two other guys show up on horses, and they have guns too. They all start walking towards each other, guns drawn. I think they're going to have an old-fashioned duel. No, wait, actually, this guy just nodded, and now I think they're going to rob this place together? Bang, bang, bang. Those gunshots were really loud. I think they were successful. I don't know. It's hard to tell. They're not in frame. <laughs> but you heard three gunshots, and oh, shoot, this other guy just jumped through the window with a chicken leg in his mouth? Some guy did a weird yell, and now the words, the ugly, just showed up in the air, I guess. Let's look inside now. Ah, yeah. Those guys got shot. Two of them are dead, and one seems to be bleeding out. I think it's the guy with the weird face. <laughs> and it took me 188 words to describe everything that happened in that opening scene. Sergio Leone didn't need a single word. You know, and there's so many, so many moments in this movie where it, it just builds that suspense without a single word. Mm. You know, there's so many shots in this movie where something is just out of frame. And then it, it pops right back into frame. You know, and there's so many moments where a subtle nod, where the swelling music is supposed to just take you away. Mm. And, and really, you know, if you, when you think about a Western, at least I think of the classic, you know, man of few words. And we see that so much in, you know, Clint Eastwood's very stoic performance. And... I think it lends itself incredibly well to film in a way that it just couldn't in a book or, I don't know, a musical. I don't think it would <laughs> work as a musical either, but I'm not going to sing for you. Dang. That's hugely disappointing that you didn't write a song version of the opening scene. Elliot, you want to give uh, English a graduated English major's review of this <laughs> opening scene? Uh, that was pretty bad. Um, <laughs> I, I think that maybe you you haven't quite realized the full potential of the written word and its ability to communicate narrative and imagery. Uh, it seems I understand that the movie has been directly translated to <laughs> book form, but like, so it's not really a book. It it's just. An audience member's account of the movie, which I, I don't think would make for a very good book. So uh, I guess what I'm saying is point taken, but um, I, I definitely would not read that book if I pick, picked it up <laughs> in the library. But, but to your point, AJ, of this being a very visual medium, one of the things I wrote in my notes is just how much of and it's crazy because the spaghetti westerns came very late in terms of the western lifespan. Like they kind of signaled the end of the westerns as the most popular films of the time. But it's interesting how much of the iconic visual language of the western is established in this movie. In almost like the dying gasp of the western, Sergio Leone beautifully summarizes the Western, and I think what you're talking about in terms of the visual and I think especially the auditory experience of watching you use the opening scene, and I think it's a great example because it builds on the classic Western sort of tropes, right? 
there's the abandoned sort of town. There's some mangy dog wandering around. And then flies some, everywhere. Yeah, so many flies. Wherever this was filmed had to have smelled terrible. Really a breakout role for flies. <laughs> yeah, big year for flies. They wouldn't have one like it until Jeff Goldblum's The Fly. <laughs> um, but I think this opening scene is such an amazing example of something that the movie does very well throughout is building tension through the visual of, and he always finds a creative way to show that kind of building tension that he starts with the classic hip shot where you can see, right? Just the person's hip and their gun and their hand. And then he goes to shots that look like they're coming from right inside the buildings and by like a well and, then the tension's building, and like you already described, right, they're not there to shoot each other. They're there to kill someone else. And then Tuco, that's his name, right? Tuco. Yeah, Tuco comes bursting through the window. And I think the opening scene is a really good encapsulation of what is then good in a lot of the rest of the movie is visual tension building using the classic iconography of the Western. Uh, yeah, so I have written in my notes, and when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. <laughs> not sure what I meant by that. Um, it's one of those things that probably made sense at the time. So I'll just go off book here for a little bit. I agree. This movie is very well shot. I think what you're talking about, uh, and you may have said this while I was thinking about making that joke, and I just missed it is that there's a lot of really clever framing devices uh, to give, like, scale and distance to shots. And I I love a slow-burning movie uh, with slow-burning tension, and I think that there are a lot of good scenes of that. I, I liked the scene of uh, Blondie slash The Good and Tuco slash The Ugly walking through the town that was being shelled while they were being hunted by angel eyes slash the bads men I thought that was a pretty good scene and it was uh well done and of course it's always impressive the level of work that had to go into these sets and i mean i think we can't talk about technical elements and set design and the amount of work that must have gone into this movie without mentioning the scene at the river I mean, holy cow, all those extras and all those pyrotechnics all timed, you know, oh my gosh, I just said, you know, dang it, uh, all timed as you are aware, I'm sure, to relative perfection, that was really impressive. Yeah. Mm. Yes. I think the movie is incredibly impressive technically. It's obvious that Leone has gotten significantly more money from the early uh, Dollars trilogy movies, which are mostly set in one or two towns. The first one's set in just one town. The mm -hmm. second one is set in, I think, like two or three towns. But certainly nothing on the scale of, yeah, the scene with the bridge is just huge, which I think I said when we watched it, that... I love watching old movies because they have stuff like that. And you know everyone in that shot was a a real human being. They weren't CGIing a bunch of people. There was just oh, yeah. a ton of people. I think I think too, when you just look at anyone in this movie, even 
that's not the three main characters. You just really get a sense of like Sergio Leone was always looking out for someone with some weird feature. Like, oh, this guy's eyes are crazy blue. This guy's got a crazy scar on his face. This guy's got no legs. Like just the way he like establishes every scene with like a really, you know, it's a really like notable, really visually striking person mm. is I think makes this movie this really long movie that much easier to understand. And it gives it just that much more character of like, uh, this is, you know, a universe with lots of different people. Who, mm. Even if they have, you know, a two second role, they still, it still hits you. Yeah. Oh, this universe is full of other people. And this universe is very lived in. And I think, you know, the more you look at how sweaty some people are, how dirty some people's fingernails are, and like just how many flies are flying right into someone's face. Like you really just get that, lived in grimy aesthetic that I think he was really trying to portray in a lot of his shots. Yes. And I think it's very, uh, the movie that kind of comes to mind for me is die hard in terms of having a similar sense of characters with very little screen time. And especially in terms of like Hans Gruber's henchmen, Mm -hmm. they are very, they're still noticeably distinct characters that they behave kind of differently. Some of them are related. I think there's some brothers. So there's one who kind of gets a personal vendetta. And I think this movie has kind of a similar sense of that. If you're thinking of stuff like Tuco's brother, the three guys that Tuco recruits to try and go and kill Blondie, the, uh, with the craziest laugh I've ever heard, but I had. Yeah. And, Sounds like Skeletor. The two guys that um, Angel Eyes is working with at the Union, like, prisoner camp, the head of the camp, and then the evil dude who's helping him torture people. I think it's a very good... He does a very good job of making all these characters distinct, and then it helps that they all, like you said, look very European, very striking. (laughs) Yeah. I I don't know about all that. I definitely definitely for like speaking roles, but I mean I I couldn't tell you anything about Angel Eyes's henchmen that die in the scene where they're that I was talking about where they're stalking the two main characters through the shelled out town. Yeah, I whatever, sure, okay. I'm not going to fight you on this. <laughs> I love this. Um Here's, here's what I'd sort of like to talk about, because I think it's fairly important, and as we go on, and Elliot sort of already mentioned this, the pacing of this movie is very interesting, I think. I mentioned to you as we watched it, AJ, that the main sort of driving force of the plot, like we mentioned, is this gold reserve that they discover, that they find the location of, and that doesn't show up until almost an hour into the movie. There's quite a bit of setup and then even once they discover it there's a fair amount of kind of of things that are getting them closer to the goal in a sense but feel like almost their own story i think you use the word of vignettes that it feels like Hmm. just little stories i kind of felt like it was almost a novel-esque approach that it was like a chapter by chapter that there is an overarching story but it's more focused on making you want to finish this chapter and then finish the next chapter. And so I was just kind of wondering how uh, you two feel about the pacing of the movie. Cause I think there's one particular vignette, I guess you could say that I take issue with, 
But for the most part, I was kind of surprised by how little the pacing annoyed me. I think I've mentioned fairly consistently the last couple times that movies that take a while to get going kind of annoy me because it feels like a lot of more setup than they maybe need. But because I find this setup so entertaining, like Tuco and Blondie and their little scheme that they have of Tuco being uh, arrested and then Blondie getting the money and then freeing him and then they split the money and go to another town. I just I find it very entertaining. So I did not have a huge issue with the length of setup to this film. And then a lot of the vignettes I found interesting in one way or another. So I didn't really have an issue with it. Elliot, what was you mentioned already that you didn't like the pacing, but maybe clarify that a bit. Well, honestly, what you've just said kind of recontextualizes the pacing for me. I think that's a really, really good way of putting it. Uh, it think reflecting on it through that lens, the movie has a very Stephen King like structure because I think that his books are often defined by very episodic bits of plot that are self-contained but are connected via threads that run throughout the whole thing. I guess my my issue would probably still remain with the like minute to minute pacing. Like I, I'm talking about shots of landscapes that last lo- long enough for me to appreciate the beauty of the American West slash Italy. Um, but then last even last so long that I start asking, like, did the cameraman fall asleep? Can we get a move on here? Um, so I, I still, but that's more of a minor thing than like narrative pacing, which I think that, uh, you have convinced me is less of a problem. OMG, look at that. It is a fight and we're winning. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, what about you, AJ? Will we win the war? Um, yeah, so I definitely agree that this movie is very meandering, you know, <laughs> and actually did learn something about that that changed a lot of my views about a lot of those individual scenes. And that's that Ennio Morcone, the composer for the movie, mm-hmm. he actually finished the soundtrack before filming began on the movie. And Leone loved it so much that, you know, he would play it on set and he wouldn't stop filming until the entire song had played out because he liked them so much. And so that's when you look at a lot of these scenes, especially like, you know, that final, I don't want to jump the gun too much, but that the final, you know, the climax of this movie Mm -hmm. is very long. And when you look at it from the point of view of, oh, he just really liked this song and wanted to get to the end. It makes a lot more sense. But I felt like with each of the scenes in this movie that uh, Leone was very much in the school of what's going to look coolest here and how can I fit that into this movie? (laughs) You know, I think that that was his his guiding light, his guiding principle to a lot of this, this film is that all right, I have this scene. How do I make this character, how do I make, you know, Blondie look as cool as possible? You know, how do I um, make Tuco, you know, how do I set him up to do something absolutely ridiculous? How do I set up Angel Eyes to where he looks like an absolute maniac? Yes. And I think that was 
Um, and I think it shows. Take this or leave this. But if you are looking for your um, your clickbait title for this, I would argue that it should be, is this the coolest movie ever made? <laughs> because there's so many moments That's a good where, it's, title. where it's just our our main characters standing in a pose with a with a crazy look in their eye uh, as the music's just swelling and then, you know, they'll take a shot that sounds like the Death Star just blew up Alderaan. Like every single shot in this movie is so loud, like gunshot yeah. is so loud. And then they'll say, you know, this little witty one-liner, or even better, they won't say anything. They'll just shoot their gun at someone's hat and knock it off. Like, I think, I really do think that being cool was the goal of this movie. And to me, it really succeeds. <laughs> yeah. um, and so when, you know, we see these long kind of meandering scenes, you know, to me, it's just um, Leone saying, all right, how do I make this as cool as possible? Yeah. Obviously I have to let the music play out. Obviously I need Clint Eastwood to be stoic and say some cool line, just barely audibly. And, <laughs> You know, I have to juxtapose him with Tubo. And yeah, I think when I look at this movie, I really do see someone saying, how do I make a cool movie? Mm. See, and I think that's somewhat why I tolerate... This movie is very long. It's almost three hours long. And like we've said, it's a very meandering plot. And I think a big reason why I come away as positive on this movie as it is, as I am, is because it is so cool and i just enjoy so much the minute to minute just of watching these characters outsmart each other and see as all of these intertwining sort of plot threads of blondie knows the name of the grave where the gold is but tuco knows where the where they're like which cemetery they need to go to so they both need each other but they don't trust each other and so they're kind of some infighting there i kind of want to go kind of off of that then to talk about the three main characters of the movie, the good, the bad, and the ugly. We've also got, I just want to make this joke here on the podcast. We've got the good, the bad, and the ugly. You, the listener can decide who is each of those roles, but let's, let's talk about the, the three main characters in the movie. Um, Elliot, why don't you start? Cause I just love dumping questions on you. Uh, yeah, so this is where probably my biggest problem with the movie comes from is that the good is so outshined by the bad and the ugly in terms of performance, in terms of energy, and in terms of, like, actual character. Because, so, like, I thought this was really weird, the scenes with Tuco and his brother in the monastery, because he was talking, he was talking about, like, you left for the priesthood. I had to stay behind. I don't want to be poor. I want to be rich. And the only way to do that is become a priest or a bandit. Like, he was talking about interesting stuff, like, that fleshed out his character and made me want to learn more about him and made him more interesting to me. But A, it was never expanded upon. And B, he's supposed to be, like, a secondary antagonist, almost. Like, it seems like the movie wants the good to be the main character, but the good is just kind of boring because he's he doesn't really say very much. And yet, Clint Eastwood has a jawline that you could probably see from space 
and he sounds cool and he does look cool. Like the rule of cool is absolutely in play here, but he's just not very interesting. Like I have no idea what he wants or what he's thinking. For all I know, in all of these long shots where he's just staring off into the middle distance, he could be thinking about what he's going to have for breakfast tomorrow. And it's just not very interesting. And there's none of the, like, groundwork that they had with Tuco for what seemed like a really interesting, almost multifaceted character, even though that didn't end up happening. And then Angel Eyes, um, he was a good antagonist because of his design. Like, I think the costume design, like you guys have been saying, is definitely worth, worth praising in this movie because it absolutely contributes to the cool factor. Uh, and Angel Eyes definitely has that classically black hat villain Western aesthetic to him. And also the actor just has more energy and charisma than Clint Eastwood does because he's just doing this blank-faced, stoic nothing. Like, the the principal offender for me here is when he's in the desert with Tuco. Tuco is planning on walking him to death and then selling crystal meth or something. Eh, breaking bad joke. Hilarious. Um, and then Blonde, <laughs> he Tuco shoots Blondie's water flask out of his hand. And after he does it, he's laughing. And, you know, I just said, you know, I'm just going to sit with that for a second. I'm so disappointed in myself. <laughs> Tuco is laughing and actually, like, doing something with his scene. And then it cuts back to Blondie, and he's just giving him this thousand-yard stare like he doesn't understand what's happening. Uh, this is what I'm saying. I was like, dude, you're going to die. Or Do you not have any reaction to this? <laughs> and that's what made me think, does he understand that he's about to die? Does he understand what's happening? So uh, I was... I was frustrated at times with how little there was to the good in this beyond the jawline and the stubble and the monotone and the poncho and the gun. I would actually kind of agree with you on that. I think he's seems like he's just kind of this one line machine that, that Leonidas has to move through a lot of the scenes. He, you know, similar to a point that you've made about the Mandalorian is that, he looks so cool and he looks like there's so much um, that's going to happen with him. And then he just kind of moves through the film. Um, I think, yeah, it's interesting too, because there's that scene when they're in the monastery um, and Tuco is like, you know, after he, he just shamelessly becomes his best friend after finding out that he knows where to find the money. He's like, you know, Blondie, you and me, you know, we got nobody. We got to look out for each other. And after finding out Tuco's backstory, you're like, oh, we're going to learn why Blondie is the way he is. <laughs> and then instead he says absolutely nothing and just kind of, like you said, has a thousand yard stare. But then again, I just can't knock him because he looks so darn cool. Um, <laughs> wow. Let's see, what else did I have written? Yeah, Tuco, the ugly. Uh, Tuco, Benedicto, Pacifico, Juan, Maria Ramirez. Good grief. Uh, I, in my notes, it says that it's called the Man with No Name Trilogy because Tuco took all the names. Wow, wow. funny. Good. That was your joke. <laughs> yeah, it was. You workshopped. <laughs> um, 
it's it's weird how much he seems to be the main character in this movie. You know, he's he's the third third title character, and he's the ugly. You know, he often is kind of made the butt of the joke. But then again, one thing I really respect about this movie is that you know it makes all three of its main characters seem equally as competent, you know, mm. equally as capable. Everyone gets the upper hand on someone else at some point in this movie, you know, and we get to see, you know, they're all very skilled too. Uh, you know, you get to see, obviously Blondie has his early scenes with Tuco where he's uh, shooting the rope out, right. As he's about to get hanged and then he's shooting people's hats off, you know, without hitting him in the head, which is, you know, your head's in the hat. I'm not sure how he did it, but he sure did. <laughs> Didn't even look like he left a bullet hole in the hat, too. That's the he just did it with the wind of the (laughs) bullet going by. Then you get to see Tuco when he makes it back to town after Blondie betrays him. You know, he goes into the gun shop, and as he's testing out the guns, you get to see him just go bang, bang, bang on the three targets, and then he shoots them like through the side, and they just collapse in half, and he gets two of them, and then he does his third shot, and then it looks like he missed and the gun shop owner just kind of looks at him like the, oh, you missed, even though that was definitely the coolest thing he'd seen all day. Even if he did miss the third one, but he does his, his jump and it, it falls over too. And you see like, oh, and then you get to see angel eyes, you know, and it's shocking and displays of violence. Yeah. He does some very violent things in this movie. Um, you're going to see just all three of them are, you know, equally motivated, equally competent, even though some of them are definitely smarter than others. And some of them definitely are, um, you know, more capable of actually putting a plan together than others. <laughs> Everyone gets a chance to one up the other, you know, it seems like they're all, now I'm doing it. Um, <laughs> you know, they're all very well written. They're all very well equally represented. Um, as a competent player in this game. Yeah. Um, And then one other note I had is that Lee Van Cleef's character is called Angel Eyes, um, which is a huge misnomer because he has the devil's eyes and the cheekbones of a cobra. You know, he, like we talked about this, like if you told me that this movie, that his character was, you know, was based on the snake from Rango, I would believe you. No, this man well, has the devil's it, cheekbones. He has a gaze that's venomous. Yeah, it's the for the listening audience, it's the other way around. The snake in Rango is a reference to Lee Van Cleef in this <laughs> film. Um, yeah, I don't really have a ton to add there on the three characters. I kind of agree with both of you. I guess I sort of land on in terms of Clint Eastwood, in terms of Blondie's character that I think as soon as you give up a need for him to be the main main character and a need for him to necessarily even be that fleshed out, I agree it can be kind of frustrating that you can't figure out why he's doing these things as opposed to Angel Eyes, who seems like just a sociopath, and Tuco, who we get kind of his backstory, that Blondie just seems to be just doing whatever for no reason whatsoever. I think if you look at all of these three characters and what you were talking about, AJ, in terms of establishing them as competent, as very, right, formidable adversaries for each other, 
I think if you look at it then as the whole movie building up to the final shootout between the three of them, then it becomes almost, I almost think like, do I care that Blondie doesn't have a backstory? Kind of. Do I think this movie would be that much improved by backstory? Not really. So I, I think I kind of, I agree with everything you're saying, Elliot. I just kind of end up being like, I don't really care. Well, I'm not even talking about backstory. I'm talking about like Angel Eyes has his sadism and his charm and his easygoing kind of attitude. And Tuco has his relentless, shameless obsequiousness and his manic energy. Like Blondie doesn't even have characteristics outside of the whole thousand yard stare. What's going on? If I'm quiet, maybe people will just assume that I'm smart and I know what's happening thing. Uh, and that, you, you, I guess if you give up the need for strong characters, you don't need strong characters. And if you give up the need for vision, you can just go blind. So I, I, wow. I, I understand your, uh, your sort of conciliatory appeasement, Neville Chamberlain appeasement type approach to movies. I just, <laughs> just don't quite follow it myself. All right. Well, since the movies I'm watching aren't Hitler, I don't feel like the comparison with Chamberlain is very warranted. Wow. Just saying, well, Nathan, what, you, can, you can demand more from the movies that you watch. You're worth it, man. Um, I guess. Well, and see, I think you're right that Blondie has the least character and there is only so far that coolness can get you. I do think he kind of get he gets fleshed down a little bit in the bridge sequence where he decides to blow up the bridge to stop the fighting. That there is some sense that he's doing that out of some goodness of his heart or desire to not see people die. So you kind of get that. But yeah, otherwise there's very little to him. Although, again, he's just so cool. I just Clint Eastwood. <laughs> is so cool. I wish I had started smoking earlier so I could sound like him when I grow older. So he actually doesn't smoke in real life? I don't believe that at all. That sounds false. He was born, he was born when he was like five. He was like, Hey mom, I need food. One thing I did, did want to mention about this movie is, you know, it came out in 1966, which as you said, was kind of late in the life of the Western. And you see a lot of these characters kind of do what you wouldn't expect. Kind mm. of, um, there's a term, I know you know it. Subvert. Subvert expectations yep, there you go. of what's going to happen. You know, you see it in that first, that first scene, um, you know, it looks like it's going to be a shootout. Actually, they're all there to go in together, mm-hmm. you know, to try to shoot Tuco. I think a lot of like tropes of, of Westerns, you know, up to this point are present in this movie. I think we see that in Blondie. You know, he's the the man of few words. He's the John Wayne of this movie, but instead of him being, you know, a man of few words, but I think actually he's about to say something racist any second. He's a man of few words, and I think he mostly just doesn't really, can't be bothered what's going to go on. Um, but I think there's also just this sense of like, you know, this isn't an American Western. This is a spaghetti Western. Mm-hmm. This isn't a hot dog Western. It's a spaghetti Western. Fine. And 
Was that in your notes? No, I came up with that on the wow. spot. Wow. <laughs> Good. Um, there's just so many of these expectations that you have of a Western that are being subverted as it goes on. And I think, yeah, I think as, as we look, you know, as the movie genre of the Western progressed, I think that became more and more of what defined the Western or the post-Western, the neo-Western is that actually we're going to subvert a lot of these tropes. Um, and a lot of that seems like started, you know, here in this movie. Yeah. You know, I look at something like Red Dead Redemption, where it's both romanticizing the West, you know, that we see in movies, we see in films, but it also is kind of showing you that there was a lot of, a lot of brokenness, a lot of a really dirty side to, you know, this wild West that we looked at. I don't know, Elliot, what did you think? I, cause to me, I saw that, that comparison between uh, this movie and then later movies that kind of took up the gauntlet of the Western. Uh, yeah, I, I think that this movie represents a clear stepping stone for the genre. I can definitely see how this mo- how neo-Westerns are like a response to this movie and its ilk. Um, and of course, I love a good neo-Western. I think I already said that, but it bears repeating. I'm not 100 percent sure what 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 more I can say here. I agree. I I, I think that uh, I can see the connection between this movie and later, and the evolution of the western that would leave us with the neo western. Yeah. Well, I th- I think now we should hit uh, kind of before we do final thoughts or final negatives sort of to the movie. I just want to hit, since it's such a big movie, I just want to hit some of my favorite scenes mm-hmm. in the movie. And I just want to, we've not talked about it for a long time. The final shootout of this movie, mm-hmm. I loved when I first saw this, when I watched it this time, I am very fully convinced. I might need to think harder on this, but that this is the, like epitome of the Western, that this is the greatest Western scene ever that just the music, every time you think the music has hit its like highest crescendo and they're about to start shooting the music, finds some way to get to another crazy high crescendo. And Leone puts the camera even closer to the characters faces I mean, I swear, the final shootout is like five, six minutes. It's an incredibly long, drawn-out scene. But at every moment, I was just over the moon with the music and the characters looking at each other and the building tension and how we managed to keep finding a new way to shoot it. So as the score was growing, the tension was growing visually as well. And then the final that... Blondie had taken Tuco's bullets and he just, he doesn't even, he's not even looking, I don't think. And he shoots Angel Eyes and Angel Eyes falls into a grave, which is such an unnecessarily silly sort of detail. But I, I just, I adore the final shootout. I think it's so incredible. Um, The other scenes that I had here that I just really loved is when Clint Eastwood first shows up and shoots the people who were trying to bring in Blondie is, I think, a great example of the subversion sort of thing that he shows up. He shoots them. Oh, he's in league with Tuco. Nope, he's bringing Tuco in. And then there's, right, a further subversion of 
he's actually working with him in sort of a play. But I really love that scene. And then I also really like the interrogation scene where mm. Angel Eyes is torturing Tuco and outside there's a bunch of guys playing a really beautiful song. Yeah, a beautiful song. And the guy keeps saying more emotion to make them play louder <laughs> so the rest of the camp can't hear the sounds of Tuco being tortured. And between just that scene and this prior scene where Angel Eyes, it's kind of established that he's been torturing quite a few people, it makes a really inter just a really cool sort of scene of these players are very upset with kind of their culpability in what they know is happening in there, but also they're kind of trapped by nature of being soldiers in an army. So I really like those scenes, but that's me. Elliot, did you have any scenes you loved? Nope. Um, I, I did really enjoy the last scene. I think that the, the ecstasy of gold, which is the song that plays when Tuco is running through the graves looking for Arch Stanton. That is a great song. Like I, I listen to this soundtrack casually on a, on a daily basis. And that song particularly is great. And I did think it was hilarious how, how many times Leone kept on shooting him, just running, looking around while the music is playing, which definitely makes sense in light of this revelation that we have from AJ, that he was just so taken with the soundtrack that he couldn't, bring himself to cut any of it out. And then, yeah, the music is going insane in the last, in the quick draw duel. Like, I can practically see in my mind's eye Ennio Morricone with a gun to the head of the trumpeter's family saying, louder, brassier, higher, do you want your family to die? And the trumpeter going red in the face as he keeps on squeezing ever more bombastic notes out of that poor instrument. That thing was probably mangled and twisted by the time he was done with it. But I, I did love it quite a bit. Um, yeah, th so I don't really have... Can I say hi? Here's dad. <laughs> no, I'm going to cut this. Extra special guest. Dad, what did you think of the good, the bad, I, and the ugly? I've always liked it. That's but all he has to I've say. Always, you've never seen all of it. <laughs> I have seen all of it. He, now he's decided that he has seen all of oh, it. Yeah. It's been a while, but I have seen all of it. Oh, and here's Shadow. So it's all, it's all happening. It's all happening, folks. Okay, come here, Shadow. Good. Oh, Unprofessional. Un that's what I was going to say. How's that for professionalism? <laughs> I did write down that I now understand what synesthesia is like uh, because I can hear how red this trumpeteer's face is. <laughs> um, yeah, what, what, what were we... Favorite scenes, right. Yeah, I think other than that, my I, I did really like the scene between Tuco and his brother because I thought it, it added so much to him as a character, even and I and I was disappointed that they never really went anywhere with it. But I thought that it was well acted and well written on both sides. But yeah, nothing aside from and even the scenes that I did really enjoy, it was mainly for the music, but nothing that I was like jumping out of my seat in excitement for. I, I I just I was just really um really bopping to the tunes. You guys have said 
a lot of the best scenes already. Oh my bad. I do I do feel I can I can go over more, but I I know this is like the epitome of this story just meandering out into left field and sitting there for a while before coming back. But I did actually really enjoy the blowing up the bridge sequence. Mm. And I think it's mostly just because of that that union general who just hates that bridge with a passion is <laughs> just drunk off his rocker. He's like, ah, if I weren't such a coward, I'd blow up that bridge and we could all go home. And then his dying wish is to hear that bridge blow up. He's like, doctor, can, can you keep me on a little longer? I'm expecting good news. And then just the smile on his face as he hears the explosion, I think really sold that mostly meaningless side quest that they went on, which was so strange. It didn't need to be there, but I feel like it made its own reason to exist because of that. Interesting. Well, let's, from that, just because it segues very nicely, let's talk about negatives because my negative is that sequence. <laughs> um, just because I don't think it really justifies its reason for being in the movie, as well as, and I told you this as we were watching it, most of these vignettes just feel like their own story, but not in the sense that they have a story structure. And the bridge sequence has a story structure. Like, they get there, they're introduced to the problem, they stick around for long enough to see a fight and get a reason to be invested, and then they blow up the bridge and leave. It's a whole, like, not three-act structure, but it has the plot structure that we've been discussing of, right, rising action, fall, climax, falling action, whatever the nerd stuff is. Which a lot of the other vignettes, like the one in the monastery and the one in the prison camp and the one in the desert, don't really have that. They just are a story that there's a beginning, middle, end, but there's not really a sense of the kind of excitement curve. I don't know what that's called, whatever the thing of that thing is. But this one did, which feels makes it feel that much more kind of egregious to me as well as its placement as the last sort of vignette before the actual end of the movie feels very jarring especially given that it comes right after they kill angelized men and they're having like a discussion of like we're about to accomplish this thing and we're gonna go fight angelized and then it's suddenly oh wait first we have to blow up this bridge that it just feels like it interrupts the story and in a lot of different ways. So that sequence, it's not horrible and it's not going to bring it down like a huge number of points or something, but it, it's just on rewatch. I feel like it's going to get more and more like, I don't know why this scene is here, but Elliot, do you have any other, you've complained a lot. So do you have any other negatives? Um, I do want to say that, this film is weirdly sympathetic to the Confederacy. Uh, like, when Angel Eyes is walking through that destroyed fort, and the music is all sad, and it's playing this downbeat rendition of Dixie, and I was like, dang, yeah, I guess the Confederacy is losing. That sucks, apparently. Um, and then the, the Confederate general that Angel Eyes talks to is like, Oh, we, we we're dealing with this terrible union commander. He's decided to tear us to pieces. And again, I was like, 
yeah, that honorless Yankee Kerr, he's fighting the enemy in a war. What will they think of next? I'm assuming it's because Leone is operating on a vision of the American West that is very much already informed and been informed by cinema, which in turn was informed by sort of lost cause ideology. And I just thought that was that was weird. It was weird to see. Uh, I do want to say that just reminded me the joke of Blondie and Tuco seeing the dusty union people and Tuco being like, they're Confederates. He's like, oh, God, save the Confederacy. God, God hates the Yankees or whatever. And then Blondie goes, God hates idiots, too. So he's against us because it was just dust. It wasn't actually great. That was a really funny joke. What was the other? There was another joke that I was like, that is a really funny gag i know i don't know if this is the one for you um i think the moment when tuco's about to hang have blondie hang himself in that gallery and then he's and he says to blondie there was a storm the day judas hanged himself too and then clint eastwood just goes those might be cannons (laughs) i think both just shows tuco's character so well with like he's not very bright but he is going to get the job done. But also, it was just a hilarious delivery that I I hope to be able to live up to one day. That was that was not the scene I was thinking of. Interesting. I'll just I'll just have to rewatch the whole movie and find <laughs> it. Um, AJ, did you have any negatives? You've been very um, uh, praising of the film. As I said, I really struggle. If I can see a high point, I really struggle to see the low point. The thing I struggle with the most in this movie is just how, from what I understand, how all Italian films were filmed. Oh, that yeah. they just have no sound yes. on, you know, on site, and so all of the all the sound was you know redubbed, re-added later. And sometimes you can hardly notice, but sometimes it's very clear that this man is speaking Italian and he's being dubbed over in English. I think in this modern day of artificial intelligence, we can. Probably oh, fix we can it. fix it. You know, right. Make them I'm sure match their words. I'm sure cinema fans will be overjoyed at the idea of AI modifying this timeless classic. I do want to say, uh, I just found this incredibly funny. It's not in the movie per se, but we watched it with subtitles. And when Blondie said adios amigo, the subtitles just said speaking Spanish, which <laughs> I thought was really funny. So little faith in the viewer. <laughs> so, also, when someone said "vamos," it said just speaking Spanish, because we've never, we've never, we have no idea what that word could possibly mean. Yeah, that's pretty much it from my uh, notes here. AJ, you have about a war and pieces worth of notes. So, do you have any other final sort of thoughts before we jump into? I'll ask Elliot as well after. Don't worry, Elliot. I'm not leaving you out. No, nothing. Oh, actually, one thing um, is just in the final scene after, you know, the shootout is taking place. There's just a scene of of Tuco, Eli Wallach, where he has him, you know, on the news standing on the grave and it just shows his face. And I thought that Eli Wallach acted his heart out in that scene. I feel like I could see four different emotions on his face, you know, and as he's screaming for Blondie, I feel like I could hear four different emotions, you know, in his voice, which is crazy. 
because they probably recorded, you know, those, those lines like two months later, you know, completely Mm -hmm. divorced from this scene. But despite, despite the fact that he's um, a Jewish man from Brooklyn in brownface, I thought that that, that his acting was incredible in a lot of his scenes, especially that one. That's good. Yeah. I, I guess I would agree. I wouldn't contest that. Elliot, did you have any uh, final thoughts here before we get into ratings? No, there's a moth in my room, but that doesn't have anything to do with the movie or my feelings on it. Oh, that stuff. Wow. All right. Well, I'm going to go first. I'll keep it fairly brief. I feel like I've said most of what I want to say. This movie is incredibly fun. It's so cool. It, despite its kind of meandering nature and its slow burn to the story, I think this is one of the best Westerns of all time. I had a ton of fun watching it. I think this score is maybe one of the greatest scores ever and adds so much to the film. I'm going to give it an 8.2 out of 10 just for some issues with pacing and some scenes dragging on a bit. But for the most part, this movie is a, a real hoot. Hoot and a half. Uh, Elliot, you go now. Uh, okay, so I I also like this movie. I think that the music is incredible. There's a lot of really... I, I mean, everything technical in this movie is very well done. Great cinematography. Uh, set design and blocking and stuff of extras, especially in the battle scene. It's all very, all very impressive. Um, The good, or not the good, the bad and the ugly are both really good characters. They're they're good characters, and they're definitely well acted. The good is definitely the weak link of these three, and there are some flabby edits that keep it from being that keep me from using the same number of superlatives that Nathan has been using. Although I do think that this is one of the greats of movie scores. Uh, so all in all, I'm going to give it a, a B plus. B plus. Oh, that's higher than I thought he was. That's higher than I got in a lot of my classes. <laughs> hey, you're, you're more a philosopher than a student. AJ. <laughs> all right, AJ, what is both your score and what is your unique scoring method everyone who comes on has to give a unique sort of method um yeah so we we've talked about this movie i had nothing but good things to say about it except for the audio um (laughs) you know i'm just a sucker for big epic moments big atmospheric scenes that shoot out made me feel like i was in another world just the tension it built um just how cool everyone looked um, and yeah, so I'd have to say for a rating, I have to give it orange, Good like me. a slightly burnt orange, a very like old Western kind of orange. On a scale of what to what? Just the energy, the vibes. Oh my God. If I, if I come to your podcast and I just give you things that you already, you already have, what good am I? Orange. Wow. Thank you, AJ. <laughs> Goodness. All right. Well, now this is this is the part of the podcast where we do some recommendations. We're going to get through these right quick. Elliot, what is your recommendation? It's a real pretentious one. Um, I asked why. I only know what it is, as I just revealed. 
Okay, that was weird. Um, my recommendation is Yojimbo, which is a, a classic of samurai cinema by the classic director of samurai cinema, Akira Kurosawa. Um, so the reason this is pretentious, it's not like a really high-minded movie. The reason it's pretentious is because I'm choosing this because... <clears throat> Not because of any sort of plot connection, but because it's very much like a Western in terms of how it's shot and how it's paced and the archetypes that are in play here. Because as any moderately knowledgeable film student will know, the Western is, as a genre of filmmaking, is very much an outgrowth of samurai cinema from Japan in the 1950s and, and earlier. Uh, so a lot of the tropes that you associate with Westerns, like the grizzled lone wanderer anti-hero, the idealistic lawman, the town that's suffering from bandits, even like the long, slow buildup to an explosive, fast-paced action, that all comes from samurai cinema. So if you like Westerns, I would say definitely give the classics of samurai cinema a go, because you will absolutely be... In your element and Yojimbo is just a great example of that it's about a lone wanderer samurai who comes into a town that's sort of torn between these two warring bandit factions and he plays them against each other to try to get them to destroy each other to free the town from their dastardly grip it's really well shot uh, I really liked I, I'm not even gonna be able to pronounce his name Mifune I, I know is his last name uh, as the main character, he had a lot of charm and a lot of presence. And the action is really... I do really like the way that action works in samurai cinema and in westerns with the long, tense crescendo to this, like, seconds-long explosion of violent action. It's good. Uh, I, I, and, and I recommend you watch it. Yeah, I think I, it should be mentioned here that Yojimbo was remade in western cinema as the first film in the dollars trilogy uh, i think it's fistful of dollars pretty much a, a almost virtually a one-to-one -one remake both ones are very good i think yojimbo is better just because it came first and toshio mifune which is his name is fantastic uh my recommendation is a bit different from that i'm gonna go with a later Clint Eastwood directed and starring in film The Outlaw Josie Wales, which follows Clint Eastwood as the titular outlaw, Josie Wales, who, following the brutal murder of his family, becomes an outlaw to kind of hunt down the people who did this. And it becomes, over the course of the film, a very interesting look at western tropes it's a very early sort of neo-western i think it's kind of a training ground for what clinties would go would go on to do in unforgiven which is kind of seen as the e oh gosh i can't remember the, the stereotypical sort of neo-western or post-western but i prefer the outlaw josie wales i think it's a lot more interesting it specifically does a lot with the Western treatment of Native Americans, that they were typically just villainized and used as crazy people who showed up to kill people. And I think this movie does a really fantastic job of taking those ideas and showing, right, the fake 
darkness of them, the lying that's was in those ideas and showing kind of the truth of that uh, the U.S. government was kind of screwing everyone in <laughs> the early days of the Civil War and such. So my recommendation is The Outlaw Josie Wales. I think it's really interesting, and I think it's kind of slept on because of Unforgiven that people don't see it as much. AJ. Yeah, so I I came in with a bit of an outside pick, a um, bit of a gamble to try to win Elliot's favor. Um, <laughs> and I hope that I can explain, explain it well enough that I earn his respect and you know he doesn't just totally disown me after this. Um, but my pick was 2015's Mad Max Fury Road. I feel like it very much follows, you know, Leone's footsteps in the sense that I feel like every scene in that movie was filmed because that's the coolest scene that George Miller thought he could make. You know, I think it very much follows in that his footsteps too, in, you know, the way he portrays his characters, you know you see Tom Hardy in this movie start off as just like this man of few words, kind of similar to Clint Eastwood. But I think you get more characterization out of him that you don't necessarily get from Blondie in this movie. Um, And if we're talking about extras too, I feel like the extras in this movie are very much picked to be as striking as they can, similar to this movie as well. And, you know, just more comparisons to this movie. Everyone's just so dirty and grimy you know, everyone looks just so hardened and just ready to kill at a moment's notice. Like, I feel like, well, it's not, you know, a one-to-one comparison, you know, as a Western, I feel like it very much has a lot of comparisons, you know, with the rule of cool, with mm. the way it portrays its three characters is all, you know, equally valid, equally um, skilled coming from a different point of view. Yeah. I feel like this movie, while it's not, it's not a Western in the same way. It's something that if you liked the good, the bad, and the ugly and everything that made it great, I feel like you would love this movie as well. Or just if you like movies, because that movie is just dope. I love Mad Max Fury Road. If you like dust, I think that the both of these movies will absolutely wet your whistle. If you like <laughs> dust... And I think I have seen interviews with George Miller that he does kind of think of the Mad Max, the Max character as a bit of a man with no name. He just goes to a place, does a thing, and then leaves as soon as everything's better. So I think that I think that's a great I think that's a great recommendation. And well, I don't think well, that's should... great, but I didn't care about your opinion. Elliot, what do you think of me? Great thanks. I that was that was I you've convinced me I I understand the connection and obviously I love Mad Max Fury Road um, and before Nathan talks I just have to remain I just I always have to say that life is hard and full of disappointments because if anyone should forget that fact I think you're in for an even more hard and disappointing time but so just keep that fact front of mind. Uh, I do think we have in the past asked Elliot afterwards to rank our guest, to rank our guest, which is funnier when Elliot has not met the guest before. We're going to get it. Eventually, Elliot's going to bring on some weirdo I've never met and I'll get to do it. But Elliot, how how much fun did you have recording with AJ? (laughs) He's shaking his head. Yeah, I'm still not going to answer this question. 
Dang, I think that's what he said with Will, too. <laughs> You're tied with Will. And in the All future, right. when um, I bring on my weirdo, I'm not going to ask you that question because that's going to put you in an uncomfortable spot. Well, we we would hate that, I'm sure. AJ, thank you for coming on. Longtime listener, first time uh, speaker, <laughs> I guess. Uh, it was great to have you. You picked a good movie. Um, in other news, next week we're going to have a special episode, so look forward to that. Yeah, you don't know what it is. Elliot and I also don't know what it is, but it's going to be really cool. Uh, We hope you have a great week, and uh, we hope you check in next week for another episode.